Hello and welcome to Opinionated Science, the podcast from Technology Networks. I'm Rui McKenzie, a senior science writer for TN, and on this podcast, our team of scientists turned journalists convert mangled, gnarly jargon into easy-to-digest science news. I'm joined today by my colleague, Laura Lansdowne. How are you, Laura? I'm really good, thank you, Rui. How are you? Yes, I'm good. Now, we have kind of a rough theme for today's podcast. I often try and get a theme going sometimes when there isn't really one and we're just bringing together cool science stories. But I'm going to say on this one, it's kind of overlooked diseases. What do you think? You think that's, that's true? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, that's a good theme, I think. I think, I think we can join them together because Laura has some fascinating findings about the lung condition malignant mesothelioma, which is a cancer caused by the construction mineral asbestos. Now, this fibrous substance was widely known to be dangerous in the 1970s, but was not widely banned until 1999. And I'm going to discuss a disease whose very cause is still not understood, the hugely debilitating condition myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, or MECFS, which I will call it throughout this podcast for the sake of my pronunciation. I was um, going to say that's a tongue twister, definitely. It is indeed. It is indeed. Now, MECFS is, as I said, a mysterious condition that leaves people with fatigue that is not helped by rest. And I'm going to discuss some news that comes from an announcement by the UK health body, NICE. Uh, shall I go first, Laura, or do you want to go first? Yeah, happy for you to kick things off, Rory. Sure. So uh, this health body, NICE, has explicitly stated that graded exercise therapy, or GET-based approaches, should not be offered for the treatment of MECFS. Now, I'll just give you a warning, listeners. I can't hope to discuss everything about this condition in the brief time we have available for this podcast. I will leave some great links that I've encountered in my research uh, in the notes today, but it's a research area that's taken more twists and turns than a roller coaster, so there's a lot to cover. Um, and I think that there's even more twists to be had post-COVID-19, which I'll get into in a little bit. Um, but I'll start with a little bit of background. Now, ME, myalgic encephalomyelitis, was a term coined to describe, and I had no idea about this before, um, an unexplained outbreak of headaches, sore throat, and, as described in the paper, malaise at the Royal Free Hospital in London in 1955. Did you know about this, Laura? No, I didn't actually, no. I had, I had no idea this is where it came from. Now, in 1955, there was an outbreak of these symptoms, um, which affected nearly 300 members of the staff at the hospital. And due to the effects it had on their muscles and central nervous system was named myalgic, which meaning affecting muscles, encephalomyelitis, which means affecting the brain and spinal cord. However, it being the mid-20th century, uh, just 15 years later in 1970, this had largely been written off as a case of mass hysteria. And it was only later that our understanding of MECFS improved, and it, but it's done so in kind of fits and starts. Now, one problem with the condition and with pinning down the condition, which I thought was summed up very well by clinician Dr. Charles Shepard, who's an advisor to the patient group, the ME Association, was the use of the term chronic fatigue syndrome. Now, this was a, a term devised in the late 1980s by the um, Center for Disease Control and Prevention in the United States. Um, but it, it's often caused a lot of confusion because chronic fatigue is something that happens in numerous different conditions. For example, if you have major depressive disorder, you might feel tired all the time. If you have cancer, you could feel fatigued. And 
I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but Shepard kind of summed up the use of the term chronic fatigue syndrome a bit like this. If you grouped everyone that has a headache, and that might include people who have migraines, people that have a brain tumor, and just said that they all have sore head syndrome, that would be a similar way to grouping the condition uh, MECFS under the banner okay. of just chronic fatigue. So um, I think it's been a a source of considerable annoyance to patients and patient groups that um, often it's just referred to as chronic fatigue or chronic fatigue syndrome. So this is why I'm going to stick to the term MECFS, which is what the um, the US governmental bodies, for example, like the NIH use as standard now. So I'll be sticking to that throughout. Now, um, another problem when we get past the kind of naming is in the diagnosis of the condition and, and what is essentially established as the symptoms for it. Now, the most recent guidelines, which were published in 2015, um, I'll kind of sum up, sum up here. So according to these guidelines, diagnosis requires that the patient has the following three symptoms, a substantial reduction or impairment in the ability to engage in pre-illness levels of activity that persists for more than six months and is accompanied by fatigue. Number two is something called post-exertional malaise, which I'll, I'll get into a little bit, and unrefreshing sleep where you know you can rest and, and have as much sleep as you want, but it doesn't restore you in the same way it might do for people who are healthy but, but tired. Um, now, that idea of post-exertional malaise is, is going to be important when we discuss uh, GET, that therapy, which has been the subject of the, the news release I'm discussing today. Um, so I'll come back to that in a little bit. But even with these better guidelines, which have been, you know, a, a summation of years of tweaking various guidelines that were at some point too broad so that people with non-MECFS related fatigue were included in clinical trials, which distorted their results and then caused just general confusion amongst clinicians and patient groups. Um, this is, you know, the, the summation of a lot of years of, of essentially detour, I think, in the in the in the field. Um, still, 90% of people with MECFS are thought to be undiagnosed. Wow, 90%. Um, Nine-zero. Um, wow. You know, and, and this is a, relates to a condition that I've, I've discussed, I think, um, either in a previous episode of Opinionated Science or in a previous article, fibromyalgia, because it's another condition that affects women far more than men. And it, actually, interestingly enough, finding that when just anyone suffering from long COVID, um, an infectious episode near the onset of MECFS is recounted by 80% of or more of patients. So they report some kind of cold symptoms, flu-like illness that often persists throughout the, the disease and it doesn't get better. So, you know, there's lots of twists and turns here. A, a recent review estimated that roughly half of people who have been sick for six months or more post-COVID infection would meet current criteria for MECFS. Um, I think that's exciting. It, you know, obviously it's it's terrible for the patients um, suffering from both these debilitating conditions, but it's exciting in as much as it suggests if we invest in solutions for one of these conditions, we could at the very least gain valuable knowledge about the other. Now, to sum all this up, um, you know, one defining feature that I read again and again about MECFS, which again will be familiar, I'm sure, to any sufferers of fibromyalgia, is that in the past and sometimes even more recently, patients are often told by doctors that their condition is in their head, it's made up, and largely that their own experiences are kind of irrelevant to treatment. And I mention this as it kind of brings us back around to this news from NICE. Now, because of the 
limitations to clinical trials because of the difficulty in diagnosis and you know a, a lack of clarity among what exactly constitutes ME-CFS. Um, treatments have been largely absent over the last several decades, but two have kind of predominated among sort of current clinical thought, which are uh, graded exercise therapy or GET and cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. Now, essentially the understanding behind these two treatments, and I am paraphrasing for kind of brevity here because there's a lot to discuss, but it seems to me that the kind of understanding was effectively that patients were kind of keeping themselves sick by not engaging activities to build up their energy levels. And that by doing graded exercise therapy, which essentially involves a a routine increase, incremental increase in the amount of exercise that, that patients do. And also by engaging in psychological therapy, the condition could be alleviated. Um, now, these two conditions were investigated in a large trial called the PACE trial in 2011. And again, don't have time to go into detail here, but the results of that trial have been hugely controversial. And I think given more recent studies that I've read have been largely discredited. Um, mainly due to their deviation in um, essentially the trial protocol. Now, what that PACE trial originally concluded was that GET and CBT were effective, but subsequent analysis has brought that idea into disrepute. And of course, based on that you know, original assumption that essentially if patients just push themselves and, and you know, work out a bit more that their symptoms will be alleviated, which you know, patients' uh, own testimony and um, you know, it, more modern evidence has shown is incorrect. You know, I'm hardly surprised that these these therapies have been discredited, but it's essentially taken until now for NICE, the, the health body in the UK, to make this announcement that um, GET um, should not be mandated for um, MECFS treatment. Um, now, this was the result of their, their guidelines um, being updated, which was a pretty exhaustive exercise. They saw a lot of um, patient testimony and some of the surveys they used in addition to other independent surveys have shown that majority of people undergoing GET actually feel worse and have worsening of their symptoms afterwards. Um, the new guidelines instead say that exercise regimes are only advised to be taken in a highly personalized manner and uh, the cognitive behavioral therapy, while not ruled out, should only be advised as a salve for the symptoms of MECFS rather than something that could be curative for the disorder. Okay. So I guess the the initial two kind of options we have have kind of been ruled out to some extent. Yeah, that's... So that's what are the they thing. left with? That's my question, Rory. Yeah, it feels... <laughs> and, and going... You know, it's opinionated science. I'm now moving into my opinion, listeners. So um, <laughs> this is this is for me. But it seems that the field has essentially been on a decade-long detour, um, and it might actually be the COVID-19 um, pandemic that gets things back on track. Now, to you know, illustrate what I mean by this detour, a recent review looked at no less than 56 randomized controlled trials for MECFS and found that none of them met standards of coherence or reproducibility. Um, wow. So, you know, all this research has been done. Clearly, um, the what is called the biopsychosocial model of MECFS, which is what I was talking about earlier, this idea that it's, you know, whilst I don't think any doctors are arguing that it's, you know, something that's made up, um, some doctors still seem to argue that patients' mental states or psychological approach to their illness are somehow aggravating the symptoms or, or keeping maintaining a, a cycle of illness. Mm -hmm. 
which is I think this idea that NICE and um, you know the US institutes that have also started to move recommendations for for GET and CBT are now starting to see are are, are wrong um, and it still nonetheless seems that you know, this this change in guidelines is, is really controversial among clinicians um, and there was a letter published by various physician colleges including the the Royal College of Physicians um, you know, there's a whole number of groups signing this letter. It includes um, the Royal College of Psychiatrists, the Royal College of General Practitioners, um, the Faculty of Occupational Medicine. You know, these are pretty influential groups. And the gist of the letter, and I'll include that again in the show notes, essentially it kind of throws shade on the new guidelines. And it says, you know, mm, we, uh, we we still think that, you know, this this approach is the, is the right one, even though now NICE are now saying it shouldn't be undertaken, you know. Um, the, the letter kind of says that uh, we won't call it get anymore, but we're still going to, you know, take a, a similar approach. So, um, okay. you know, I, I think that the route forward, because, you know, we obviously need a route forward from this situation, again, through COVID, because there's clearly some molecular signs um, and, and essentially, you know, biomarkers that quite easily could have been missed in prior research that, are, that have emerged over the years. Um, for example, impaired immune function, um, especially of natural killer cells, part of um, the body's um, innate and adaptive immune systems. It's kind of like a crossover between the two. Um, their natural killer cells seem to be impaired in their functionality. And of course, uh, you know, alterations to um, the immune system are thought to be you know, a factor in the uh, resulting symptoms of COVID-19 and, and long COVID as well. So, uh, you know, it does feel that if um, we pursue um, the, the kind of treatment for long COVID that's required, um, there might be knowledge that's rev very relevant to MECFS as well. Um, but it's, it's a difficult field, Laura, because, um, you know, I think, it, I think it's fair to say there's not been any smoking gun found. So if mm. there is a contribution from um, you know, a virus, it might be something that is only detectable in very early stages and then has kind of like a, um, you know, impact on, say, the immune system that means it persists longer. But, you know, um, a bit like in COVID, how, you know, often studies have found there's been some infiltration of the virus that doesn't last as long as symptoms last in terms of long mm -hmm. COVID. Um, you know, there might be something similar at play here. And with so many MECFS patients struggling to get a diagnosis and even the first, you know, eight, 10 years of illness, it's no surprise that um, these kind of biomarkers have, have been hard to find. So um, I'm hopeful that the increased um, interest from um, this other COVID-19 research and long COVID research could provide an answer. Yeah, no, that's how many um, people diagnosed with it roughly did you say Ray? sorry the estimated prevalence is between 0.1 and 0.5 percent okay. um, so you know in, in the US the Institute of Medicine estimated that up to two and a half million Americans suffer from this but oh. um, you know I don't know if that includes that huge proportion of people that might be undiagnosed um, exactly yeah because you said obviously is it three you said three criteria isn't it that you've kind of got mm -hmm. to meet to yeah but that's you know in comparison to earlier guidelines and people could have been diagnosed before these 2015 um, guidelines mm, were sorry. updated. So, um, you know, I think there's there's going to be some people who, when they're reassessed using new guidelines, no longer meet the criteria, but that might mean they can be treated successfully for another condition. Mm -hmm. um, and then there'll be other people that now do fall under these guidelines who can who can get the help they need. But, um, you know, regardless, it's I think I think it shows that 
when researchers go down one particular path and, and kind of all the research in the field is framed under certain paradigms and ideas that perhaps are based on, you know, big trial. Like, and the PACE trial was a really substantive trial. You know, it, it met power calculations, these kind of things. But, um, you know, as, as you can see from the show notes, listeners, um, there's been some excellently argued articles that suggest that the, the way they essentially approach the statistical analysis of the data would kind of fundamentally flawed the trial. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, it's a good lesson, lesson for uh, future research. Yeah, definitely. Um, so it'll be interesting to just see how, obviously, with um, COVID-19 and obviously long COVID, just to see what, what comes of this. Because like you said, perhaps, I guess this is kind of, and I don't know, not a silver lining as such, but it's kind of a way to to monitor this more closely. So yeah, to see. yeah, I think the, the the advances we'll see from the amount of money that's gone to COVID research mm-hmm. will probably go far beyond that condition. So yeah, um, plenty plenty to look forward to in, in in this field, and hopefully advances will be reached very soon. Now you've got an advance to talk about of your own um, with regards to mesothelioma. So I'm really excited to hear more about this. Yeah. Um, so obviously, as you mentioned in the introduction, um, mesothelioma is caused by inhalation of asbestos fibers. Um, and as well as affecting the lungs, it can actually affect the heart and abdomen as well. So it's like the lining of the lungs, heart or abdomen. Um, and it's classed as quite an aggressive cancer. Um there's about 3,000 new cases each year in the United States. Um, mm. And the thing that really shocked me is obviously um, you can't kind of treat an illness until you're diagnosed, but it can symptoms only really appear, well, can appear 10 to 50 years after exposure. Five so zero. That, yeah, 10 to oh, 50, wow. yeah, five zero. So obviously some individuals might not have an awareness that they've been exposed until much later on when symptoms appear. Mm. And the common symptoms that people experience are shortness of breath and chest pain. Um, There aren't that many therapies um, approved for the treatment of um, malignant mesothelioma, which is what this new study is um, focusing on. Um, And to talk about survival as well, um, so the five-year survival rate um, is five to ten percent, um, and life expectancy for most patients diagnosed with mesothelioma is approximately twelve months after diagnosis. So after wow. they've been diagnosed, it's it's about twelve months, which I just found. I just think that's just. I guess it's it's because symptoms appear so much later. Obviously, it's yeah. done damage. Um, but obviously, it's a, it's it's an aggressive type of cancer, and it's something that kind of needs addressing. So that's kind of why I, you know, it caught my attention. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to go back to treatment. So off, often mesothelioma at the moment is treated with a combination of different cancer treatments. So surgery, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, um, and it's kind of focused on extending life expectancy. Um, and relieving side effects. So I think there's definitely this this need for um, novel treatments in this area. Um, so the new study that I was going to focus on, um, it kind of came um, out of work which started at the University of Vermont. Um, it was a guy called Dr. Brian Cuniff, um, and he kind of was looking into a new therapeutic approach as part of his PhD. Um, so he was a PhD student at the time. Um, and he was working very closely with his advisor and um, Nicholas Heinz and um, another colleague. Um, and they were looking at um, 
signaling pathways in cancer. Um, and it's known that um, dysregulation of signaling um, in energy metabolism in cancer cells can enhance um, the level of hydrogen peroxide, so mitochondrial hydrogen peroxide. Um, and this is beneficial for cancer cells because it supports tumor genesis, so the development of tumors. Um, and these tumor cells um, have created a way to counteract the adverse effects of the peroxide um, so they can upregulate that pathway and survive, whereas obviously normal cells would would um, struggle. Mm -hmm. um, so they were looking at a compound that could um, kind of impact this signaling pathway. Um, and I think kind of kind of sums up really well. He said they essentially choke on their own exhaust. So the drug that they found takes away the ability of the cells to metabolize the toxic byproducts. So they kind of almost, they, they just can't survive. It kind of stops their survival mechanism. Uh -huh. um, so it was actually really interesting because um, Kanif was actually kind of wrapping up his postdoctoral work um, and kind of was planning to leave academia. Um, and then he actually got a phone call from his um, supervisor, um, his advisor saying, actually a pharmaceutical company is really interested in this they want to pursue it kind of clinically um so he kind of said oh hang on let's have do a little bit more work um so the compound is actually now known as rso21 mm -hmm. um and it's being look uh, it's being investigated for malignant mesothelioma and other cancer types um it's shown promise in ovarian cancer as well um and it works by inhibiting three key enzymes in a specific signaling network within the mitochondria. Um, and it targets its particular, a particular active site of one of the enzymes. And this inactivates the peroxidase activity of the enzymes, which means that there's an accumulation of hydrogen peroxide. And then obviously that's det detrimental to the cell. Um, so it's really interesting work. Um, it's, it's confirmed to go into phase one clinical trials um, in England. So the MHRA have given the approval for it to go to, you know, push to clinical um, investigation. Um, and I just thought it was a really interesting kind of approach and, and something that's clearly needed, really. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, Laura, for listeners who don't know, covers cancer research at TN and, and some of the stuff you've shared over the years, Laura, like there's all these tricks of the trade, essentially, that these cancer cells use to make themselves more resilient, make mm -hmm. themselves reproduce faster. Um, and it's it's really interesting to see a, a technique that essentially takes away that benefit they've given themselves. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So I just think it'll be interesting to see, obviously, what the fate, obviously, it's an early clinical study. So first in human kind of thing. So it'll mm -hmm. be interesting to see how it progresses. But it, it seems like, obviously, because there's limited options in terms of therapeutics. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it progresses. Um, yeah, anything that... Yeah, I guess it's promising also. They've done research with ovarian cancer as well, and it seems to be um, a, a strategy that perhaps could be applied to different cancers as well as mesothelioma. So, um, yeah, very interesting. Glad he uh, didn't leave research sooner then. I know. Uh, if he hadn't got that call, I wonder what he'd be doing now. So I, li I literally imagine him walking out of the lab saying, bye, academia. Box everything's boxed up and it's like, hang on, I'll just take this call. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. But it just shows, obviously, I guess as well, the importance of collaboration between academia and um, 
you know, the pharmaceutical industry, because a lot of these, you know, these research studies are, they do kind of come from um, academic um, departments and things like that. So it just shows that obviously, I think because of COVID-19, I think there's a lot more interaction between academics and industry now. I think everyone's a lot more open to collaboration. So I think that's a really positive thing that's come out of the pandemic as well. So I guess this is this is an example where obviously, um, yeah, that's a good example of how it's kind of helped to progress. Yeah, and, and I hope it can be, you know, maybe a window into the future of MECFS where, mm -hmm. you know, after sustained investment and, you know, use of um, the advanced kind of molecular tools and, you know, things that have uh, powerfully enabled us to assess cancer in all its different forms, you know, if any of that kind of power and, and analysis can be attuned to something like MECFS where, quite frankly, the money's just not been there, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it's a a really exciting future for these kind of overlooked conditions. Mm, definitely. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much for discussing them with me, Laura. And um, we'll be back in a couple of Friday's time with another episode of Opinionated Science. But until then, for all our listeners, please do like, share and subscribe to our podcast. And wherever you are, please comment and let us know what you think. Don't keep your opinions to yourself. Bye for now. <laughs>